Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io. All right, it's Thursday at 4.20 p.m. Eastern. That means it's time for office hours or as weekly session for cultivators to learn from the experts and talk to each other about what they're seeing with their grows. My name is Keisha. I'll be your co-moderator today. What's up, Mandy? Hey, Keisha. How's it going? How's it going? We're here for episode 52. Oh, my gosh. And guess what? For today's show, we actually have a very special guest, but I will let Keisha and Jason introduce them in a minute. Um, we are also going live over on YouTube soon, so make sure you send us your questions if you're over there. Um, and if you're here live with us, make sure you send us your questions, and we will make sure that we get all of those to the team. Um, I'm here to remind you, if you're active on any of the social platforms, so that means Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, LinkedIn if you're super professional, and Social Club um, if you're super stony, um, <laughs> please follow us because we're on all of the accounts now, and we have different uh, content for all of the different platforms. And well, we got a lot of questions in this week, so I'm not going to waste any more time with the intros. I'm going to go ahead and pass it back over to you, Keisha. Awesome. Thank you, Mandy. Yep. You have a question with us. You're live with us right now. Type it into the chat at any time. And if your question's selected, we'll either have you unmute yourself or I can ask for you. Seth and Jason in the house. What's going on, guys? Hey, I think we're here now. All right. Appreciate everyone's patience today. We're excited to be chatting with Dan and, and having another great episode. Great to see you back in here, Seth. We're always, uh, always have more fun when you're around. Thanks, man. I'm stoked to be back. I definitely yes. missed this. Yeah, yeah. A I'm month or so, here. so it's good to be back at it. Awesome. You guys mind telling everybody who's on with us today? Give us, give our guests an intro. Yeah, we've got, uh, we've got Dan from um, Sizzy. And we're really excited to have him on. He's got pretty good history of growing some of the best weed in the industry. And uh, would love to hear about what he's done, how he gets there, and, and, and maybe how we've been part of some of the success that he's been getting recently. Yeah, thank you for having me on, guys. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show, man. Yeah, so if everyone's ready, maybe we'll just uh, start grilling you with the questions and... Uh, and pick your little brain there. All right, man. What's uh, what's your background? What, what were you doing before cultivation? And uh, how would you get started in the cannabis industry? Before cultivation? Wow. So started cultivating about 19 years ago. So didn't do a whole lot before. I did, I did some door-to-door sales basically through high school. And... Um, that's pretty much it. I didn't. I didn't do much outside of uh, cannabis industry. I mean, getting. I. I got into the cannabis industry probably when I was in high school. You know, just like some people start smoking weed, and you're like, "Damn, I make some money off this too." Just kind of always had like an entrepreneurial like spirit, I guess you'd say. So I think that's what kind of led me into maybe like the sales part of it. And then, you know, once you realize that you can start growing it yourself, that's where, you know, the game changed a little bit. So I started growing, I stuck a little house grow back then. And then as time progressed, the sales part of it. laws changed and doors got open for me to expand into the legal realm. And here I am. 
Very cool. And on a timeline, about when did you start growing uh, cannabis at scale? I mean, probably um, five years ago. Nice. Probably doesn't. I don't think it's been that long. Only about five years. Very cool. So you're perfecting the art, uh, kind of hands-on, real detailed, long time before jumping into the 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 big game, which yeah, some of the some of the best cannabis we see can can come from people like you. What uh, you know, other than smoking cannabis, what what drew you to through being a, a professional cultivator? I'm sorry. Say that again. What uh, what drew you to being a professional cultivator? Like, you know, always any of us can smoke pot after work. Uh, what what is it about the plants? Was it about the the people you were working with? <laughs> the science. I, I think I think just having such a history w- with the plant, um, I just I always see myself <clears throat> being in the industry, regardless of of what happens in my life. I just, I want to be connected to it for some reason. I don't know what that reason is, but I'm drawn to it. And, uh, I'm just, I feel really blessed to even be here. Yeah. I think a lot of us do too. It's pretty awesome to be in an industry that you're passionate about, you know? Yeah. So like I, I tell people all the time cause I play the lottery, you know, like I'm like back and win a hundred million dollar jackpot. I'm just going to, dig deeper into this industry. I'm not going to like, oh, some people be like, Oh, I'll just retire. Never work again. I'm like, what? why would you do that? And it's the word, the word retired doesn't even compute my brain. Cause like, if I'm just, if I'm going to be alive, I want to be doing something growing to get better and helping people jobs, you know, like it's just the oh. way my brain works. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I know for me, one thing that's been cool is to watch it go from, you know, totally black market. We have that intermediate medical period. There's still some medical growing up, but the industry has been changing so much that if you've been involved for a while, you never got to really settle into a set, you know, stream for very long. You know, every couple of years, it's like, well, here's something new. And even in the, the rec market now, just small law changes are huge sometimes. Yeah. And know who knows what the future holds with the type of money that comes into this industry and what manipulations could potentially happen you know so we have to be prepared to create something better than they can i guess right <laughs> like, yeah that's you know that's one of the one of the tough things like we always get people being you know oh we should federally legalize this and uh, you know, we've been fortunate enough to be part of the state-by-state legalization that's really offered it bigger opportunity for, for craft cultivators to be successful, you know, in, in other industries, you know, even, even if we look up what uh, cannabis industry in Canada has happened, we've got massive conglomerates that come in with you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and, and really stomp the market as far as where craft cultivation can exist. And so I, I, I think that we've gotten pretty lucky with the route that legalization has gone. And, you know, even though state by state legislation can cause some, issues like oversupply in Oregon or what we're seeing some of the market uh, trends in California happen right now. Uh, I, I still think that that's a better chance than what would happen if, uh, if it was legal across the U S all in one, one big blow. So, um, I know for, for me that that's something that has been a, a huge opportunity for startups like Arroyo and, and probably some of the facilities that are growing top tier craft product like you are. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't know about you guys. 
my family, you know, we find brands that, that we align with and, and we want to continue giving them money. And I see that being similar, you know, in the cannabis industry, you, you know, everyone can have a great product, but if you, you offer some other sort of connection with the consumer, they, they'd much rather give you the money than somebody else. So that's, I think that's key in expanding businesses. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up brands. Maybe you can give us some insight on kind of what the, the most important factors of, of your brand are. And, and maybe, you know, it sounds like all your product goes through Stizzy. Um, maybe we can just give the crowd an idea of why people choose Stizzy. Um, you know, what is it culture driven? Is it just product quality? Uh, is it experience? What, what are the kind of the main factors that uh, drive people towards that product? So, you know, I'm just contracted to, to grow for them. So I don't have a whole lot of insight on, on what they do and how they do it, but I know that they have, uh, They've been very successful at connecting with with a certain market, and you know the people that like their product like their product, and you know I'm happy to to be able to to, to contribute to that, you know. But as far as far as insight in, into their success, I don't really know, you know. I just kind of stick to the cold and cultivate and do my thing and let them win. I can comment to that a little bit. I think a big part of it is connecting people like you to the whole process all the way through sale. You know, you're connecting to the culture, but also making good business moves. You know, it's, it's one thing to build a brand, but once you add uh, all the other facets of the business onto it, you have a more complete package. I think that's one thing a lot of people are struggling with is, uh, you know, having an, an organization that is big enough to adequately service all those needs you know, you want to focus on growing. You don't want to spend your time growing a brand, right? So it's to your benefit to work with people who can focus on that. And that's, we're just seeing that hit the industry. You know, we've got a lot of companies out there that are very focused on the brand, but they're not big enough to own seed to sale or cut to sale, you know? And uh, it's really cool to, I think, to visit Stizzy, especially in LA and see, you know, the different facilities and see how connected all that is. It's, it's huge to me, you know? I can go to yeah. the store and go see someone like you inside of a couple minutes, not, you know, hours. They really got a good thing going. I'm, I'm super proud of them. Daniel, I have a question for you. So you have history um, from pre-legalization to now, like what was that transition like to go from, you know, maybe just growing what you love, doing what you do, like really feeling, feel, uh, fulfilling a passion versus now, like this is your work, you are contracted, you have goals that you have to fulfill. So like, what is that, what is that like, what's that been like for you? Well, that period of time was, it was very interesting because a lot of people were, were either like wanting to do it or not, you know, like a lot of people either, you know, they had their thoughts on, on what the market would be like. And, but, but I knew that, you know, if this started, it's going to progress. So I, I wanted to get my foot in the door and, and I have what, well, you know, one of my best friends is actually, you know, like a, a partner in Steezy. So he was able to, you know, kind of bring me along for the ride, so to speak. And, uh, it, it's really cool. You know, like I see people that never made the transition, you know, and, and some of them just fizzled out and they don't even grow anymore. Um, and without, without transitioning and, and, and doing that, I, I feel like you're, you're 
you're limiting yourself on, on where you could actually go in the future. Is this opened up so many doors, you know, like just working with you guys, you know, like I didn't even know anything about crop steering until I got into the legal market. Um, and once I got introduced to that from a, a friend, you know, definitely crashed some crops. <laughs> and then you guys came along and, you know, just threw me a life preserver. And basically things have been uh, really good ever since. I'm glad you said that, Tom. I heard, I saw a comment on Instagram earlier today and uh, someone was talking about how great cannabis has been grown before Arroyo and, and it will be after Arroyo. And I was thinking, well, you know, I'm a great driver and I still wear a seatbelt every day. So, <laughs> you know, even the best of the product coming out, it's nice to to have something to to refresh your your knowledge as far as, you know, what, what are my consistencies in the room are my environment acting appropriately and, and keeping tabs on that stuff when you're too busy to do that yourself. So maybe we'll transition and go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I, I really, I really enjoy being able to see how the EC is fluctuating, you know, the water content, temperature, humidity, VPD, you know, I'm, I'm constantly looking at that thing and just making little adjustments where I can. It's fun. Yeah. So maybe, maybe you want to tell us a little bit about some of the challenges that you faced uh, on a day-to-day basis of work uh, before Arroyo and maybe some of the things that, that changed after implementing a, a little bit more sensor. So I think, by, you know, with my introduction to crop steering, I didn't really get that much information uh i didn't know anything about like a p1 or p2 so you know i was doing these these waterings in the beginning and i was using like the like the first generation Trollmaster water content sensors which i felt were very inaccurate you know i would think that i would have more water in there than i did you know all of a sudden you see plants burning and like oh wow i guess it wasn't accurate so, um, yeah, we, you know, once once I got a Roy and I started talking to, to Ramsey, he he really uh, showed me a lot on how to properly, you know, get your water content up, P1s, P2s. And then I've just been kind of experimenting with it, you know, ever since. And it seems to be working really good. <laughs> yeah, and I know uh, one thing I love about the system, I'm sure you could comment on, is, you know, we are in a phase where we do have a basic outline of, like, certain irrigation strategies that promote certain types of growth. Right. But when it gets strain specific, you're always adjusting going like, man, I can bulk this one harder or I can push the EC harder on this strain. And that 24 seven data monitoring makes you, helps you repeat it. You know, when you actually do something on accident, but you get it right. Uh, knowing is like half the battle. It's horrible when you have your best run, your best run ever. And then you look back and go, what did we do different? And you're looking through your notes. Like, I don't know. (laughs) Who goofed up the settings on the thermostat and made the product fantastic this time? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, to me, that's been huge. And I'm sure that's been a big part of your growing process, too, as you've scaled up and really filled out these huge facilities. Yeah. And and to be honest, I I don't, you know, fully use your platform like I should. I'm still kind of old school. I like to write stuff down, you know, so Mm. um, I look back on stuff and... But, you know, your data definitely, definitely helps out. 
So do you get to select your genetics or is that, um, is that driven by the supplier or by, uh, by the sales there? You know, I can choose to put, you know, whatever I want in the rooms. Um, and I'm looking for something that's going to sell and something that's going to yield and, and make money. So, you know, if we can make the consumer happy and make money and then I like the way it grows, you know, I'll just throw it on repeat. And that seems to be what I found with this, this particular kind of lemon cherry gelato I'm running right now. It seems to, um, veg well, flowers well, bulks well, finishes really nice. And the, the terpene one is just like pure candy. You know, like I actually discontinued smoking, you know, for my uh, personal development reasons. And this one makes me like, just want to try it. I'm just gonna... <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm just just... Like, Man, I really wish I could just, you know, just light up a joint of it when it's done. Cause I just want to know what it tastes like. You know, I mm. don't necessarily want to get high, but I really want to know what it tastes like. And oh. I, I kind of, wish that would be kind of cool like having like cbd strains that don't necessarily mess with you cognitively but you can enjoy those same wonderful terpenes like that would be pretty amazing i imagine that's coming i think we're getting there yeah i mean a big part of it right now is just the money's in high thc numbers you know the we're waiting for that boutique kind of sewer market to kind of settle in you know because i mean the reality of that right like if you wanted to if you want to do that, get that beautiful turp expression, you know, it's going to be a great breeding project. It's going to take some time. And then also you're going to have to be dialed as a grower to repeat that. You know, we talk about phenotypes, but getting into chemotypes, like you might grow it. And then it actually comes out at like 8% THC and you thought you were growing something with one or two. And then you're like, okay, well that's uh, yeah. 8% is not a lot, but for the people that go to the store looking for one or two or less, they're not going to buy it now. Now it's not, you know, low enough THC for them. Yeah. I wonder if different lighting spectrums and stuff like that will help out in the future with that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We're it's, it's all coming together. I mean, one thing I think, uh, and that's, what's awesome talking to people like you that have been through pretty much every iteration of this market, right? Like you've got your, I like to call it your generation one build out, which is like your garage slash the basement. <laughs> you got your gen two is like, oh, the first time we actually got a space for this, you know? And then there's gen three where you actually ironed out a lot of the details and it performs like you want to and doesn't break down twice a week. <laughs> you know? Like humidification control. <laughs> yep. Yep. There's all those little things that come together. And I think that's one thing cool that, you know, for a lot of us in this industry, it's passion driven. And part of it's because uh, if you've been in it long enough, and, and almost anyone coming in, even setting up a brand new facility that looks just amazing, you've had some sort of issues to overcome. And that makes you appreciate like where we're going and really appreciate technology and tools. Because uh, at the end of the day, if you don't have the tools, any kind of farming, uh, it's hard work. Yeah, it gets dirty, sweaty, it's hot in there. Life, really. You know, mm-hmm. anything without the right tools is just, oh, gosh, it sucks. Yeah. And it's it's just necessary, you know, I mean. I know I've talked to uh, several people you said that used to grow on the black or gray market and coming now in direct, they're like, oh man, that's, it's so much overhead. It's all this and all that. And I'm like, well, Hey dude, here's a trade-off back in the day. Your stress maybe came from growing a legal product that had a premium on it. Now your stress is just running a regular business. Like (laughs) maybe a little mental resets in order. (laughs) (laughs) One should be way more stressful to you than the other. And you know, I mean, different people are, 
obviously have different opinions on things, but it's kind of where we're at, you know, like, yeah, you, you got the stress for running a business, having employees, <laughs> you know, doing all that rather than just like, oh man, you know, make sure the, make sure those windows stay blacked out and <laughs> <laughs> let's not, you know, figure out how many lights we can put on here before the power company starts asking questions or something. <laughs> make sure your wires aren't running too hot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How many lights can we get in here on 120 before we burn the basement down? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So it's, it's just trade-offs, right? You know, and embracing like a little more, uh, I don't know, it's a different lifestyle. We're, we're all still black sheep in society in a certain sense, right? <laughs> We'd still knew it's more accepted than it ever has been. But um, I'll say like having some background in a little bit bigger ag and more traditional crops, if I wasn't uh, passionate about cannabis, cannabis plants and growth, you know, really interested in that itself, I don't know if I would have taken the chance to become fully invested in cannabis, you know, uh, it's, it's still a pretty niche thing. And I think that's what really drives it sometimes is passion with the growers and not even, you know, right now the consumers are all kind of in an educational phase. It seems not everyone, but we're seeing probably more, you know, cannabis consumption than we've ever seen before. But it's also still not, you know, 90% of people in the U.S. So it takes time. It takes time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're battling against big pharma. You know, they got all, they got all the other things to, to, to treat people's ailments. So. Oh, yeah. And a lot of market research and huge amounts of capital to really dive in and, you know, drive money making. Right now, it's uh, I think a lot of success in the cannabis industry is really driven by uh, creativity in marketing and growing and finding your niche, you know, there isn't a, other than saying, Hey, you need to try to produce for under a certain dollar amount, (laughs) given, you know, how much given your market that you're in. Um, other than that, man, you got to try to differentiate yourself and be original here. It's not, it's not the same as peas or strawberries or, you know, all these other crops that have a little more of a standard they're shooting for. You just made me think about when I see these pictures of these, uh, indoor grows with their beds of living soil. I'm just like, wow, that person's really has courage. <laughs> I was going to say, they're brave. Yep. Like, I, I like the idea, you know, like where it's going, you know, but I just, I don't have the cojones to, to go after it in that direction. Oh yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and part of it too, there's like uh, Production solutions for all kinds of different markets and employee situations, right? Like I have talked to some guys recently doing living soil beds and some big greenhouses, but they're really, really small number of employees. So they go, okay, what's our payoff here? Do we have, we, we already don't have perfect control in our greenhouse, but we cannot hire a bunch of people. I'm like, well, you guys like wheelbarrows? <laughs> and they're like, as long as we don't have to do it every two months and it's not so bad. Like, okay. Fair enough. Turning over, you know, several thousand pots versus, hey, maybe our yields are going to be a little inconsistent, but it works with our business model is cool. And, you know, for some people, that's something they can exploit. Hey, we're sun grown, (laughs) organic, you know, get a little premium there. Yeah, I mean, I guess once you have your your market, I mean, Mm -hmm. they love you and you have a decent product should be okay. Yep. Figure out what works for you. And then also, you know, I think the ability to be adaptable, you know, like in your situation, you could probably go through quite a list of uh, pot sizes, different media you've tried over the years. And, uh, 
what's gotten you where you are is not sticking and saying like, Hey, I'm going to have a 15 gallon pot and this is the only way we grow weed <laughs> and we're going to grow these big plants. Like you walk into a room and go, Oh, uh, that won't work. What do we do different in here that, you know, how do we actually get our square footage production out of it? Not just, there's only one way to produce this type of herb, you know? Seth, that is a perfect segue. Actually, Daniel, I wanted to ask you about what uh, continuous improvements, you know, you're cultivating professionally here in California. Uh, this is a pretty informed consumer base out here. Um, but just like kind of wondering how you approach making continuous improvements to make sure that you're kind of delivering to, to consumers and patients, like something really special. You mean as far as like from, from harvest to harvest? Sure. Yeah. From your, from your own practices, things that you, you like to kind of check in on and kind of evolve and change over time. Hmm. Um, you know, I like to see how the finished product is perceived by, you know, the smokers and then try to see if there's something like, Oh, maybe if I would have taken this longer or shorter, it would have came out better. You know, Cause it seems like right now, a lot of the customers that, that I know are really concerned with the, the terpene profile and, and how it tastes, you know? So that's kind of been the, the biggest thing that's been steering the manipulations I'll make between <coughs> and then obviously trying to keep the, the yield up as well. Yeah. So what are some of the things you have to keep in mind for, for that? So the tastes of the consumers evolving in a particular direction, they're interested in terpene. So what are some of the improvements you have to do on your end to fulfill that? You know, just keeping an eye on, on the plant as far as harvest time. And then, you know, when it gets to the drying room and, and the curing process, like that's, that's where a lot of errors can be made. And, checking in on the trimmers, make sure they're doing a good job and things aren't getting bagged too soon, too late. It's little things like that, really. It's not super involved, but I mean, you have to kind of care about it to do a good job, I think. Absolutely. I mean, uh, that's where kind of having each part of the process, not necessarily under a single person, but brought together in an organization is good because you not only, you know, caring about what your finished product looks like, but actually getting to go ensure that whoever you pass it off to in post-production is doing the kind of work that you expect them to do and want them to do is really key because it's easy. It's, this is a new industry. We always say that it's really easy to not ensure you have proper SOPs and proper quality analysis along the way. You know, it goes right back to the old snap test. That's kind of hard to teach people, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of people I feel that scale and even like on, on my end could, could do like consulting for multiple facilities. And I, and I haven't really wrapped my brain around how to do that because I'm so hands-on and like, unless I bring on somebody that does that for me, I don't see how it could come out the same. Exactly. Just throwing them over the phone or, or, you know, whatever. So I haven't, I haven't, extended my reach as much as maybe I could have if I was opening up, you know, that can of worms. But I just, I, I visualize it not working out, <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't there often. So I'm well, willing to take on something else like more local where I can be around. <laughs> but that's what that small march of progress is doing technology, right? Like we're getting to that point where 
you know, we'll, we'll just take it back to uh, like watering instead of even drying, you know, uh, without some sort of insight into what's going on, you're either out there picking up pots or uh, <laughs> trying to put them on a load cell or something, you know, and like, if you're going by picking up, well, let me, let me just hand you a book and let's all hold it, write down a guess and then put it on a scale. You know? <laughs> and how many times do we have to do that as a team until we're aligned, you know? About 1500 times a room. Yeah. For six months to a year. And then maybe you guys might all be close. <laughs> you know? So yeah, just little tools, like not only insight into seeing there, but then also go into, you know, pressure comp irrigation, which was a huge one for anyone that used to hand water switching over to that and going, wow, I can turn this on and give everything the exact same amount of water. You know, whoa. And uh, that's just part of scaling on all levels, whether it's watering your plants, post-production, you know, we see a variety of uh, hanging solutions going to different facilities, you know, that range from like, whoa, this is high tech to like, man, you guys spend a lot of time putting weed up and taking it down, you know? The clothes hangers? Yeah. I wasn't going to be specific. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> hey, 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 they're professional. They're solid metal. <laughs> <laughs> and they, you know, it all works, right? But it's that progress of like, well, this worked and we can replicate this on a big scale, but after running that for a year or two, you start to get visions in your head and you're like, how could I do this in this space and have less mess and less pain in the butt taking it up and, or putting it up and taking it down, you know? I think the best drying room I have seen so far is Miami Mangoes facility. This place is unreal. They got that place pretty colorful these days too, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. That's how you attract the attention, man. It's peacock. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, a little bit, right? You know, that's the that's the crazy thing. It, like here in Washington, I know since like the rec market hit, I've seen some uh, amazing weed at the stores that had zero brand presence and you didn't see them after a few months. And I was like, dang, that's a bummer. Like you can tell it's someone really passionate, doing great work and they're so focused on growing. They don't have time to make labels, man. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That, that, that is sad. There's a, I think there's a lot of growers under the radar like that. It's like, man, if you could just have a partner, yep. this cheerleader in your background, you'd really win. Exactly. And, and you know, it's a, it's a time thing. Like <laughs> when you look at your organization, that's a few people's full-time job is just to come up with that strategy, generate the content. Like it takes actual work. It really does. Yeah. I was going to say you, you've got a, a pretty good situation figured out there where you're supplying for one of the more notorious brands, uh, in the country right now. And obviously you get to do what you love to be part of that and make that great. So you get to keep focused on how you play, uh, an important role in their company and, and really get better at what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, it's the only way to to remain relevant in this industry is, you know, to continue to get better because if, if we don't, somebody else will. And then, you know, there's no job that's there forever. You know what I mean? Like Oh yeah, and you know, you nailed it there and I think one thing uh we can all look at California's legalization and how that rolled out and know that, you know, we're not going to always expect the government to protect the small business player or the medium or the large business player, you know, just because they say it's a regulated amount of licenses or anything like that. That doesn't mean it's going to be perfectly fit to the market at all times because they don't have previous data to look back at either. You know, what do they have? Five years, six years to go. Hmm, this is what's Rex been selling. How much, you know, 
What does that equate to for canopy space across the state licensing? They don't know yet. You know, there's people out there still barely pulling a pound of light that are in commercial production. Okay, well, if the state's looking at square footage and what kind of yields to expect, they can just kind of throw their hands up and say, well, they will yield somewhere between one and four pounds (laughs) per four square feet. Uh, (laughs) You know, how many licenses should we put out next year? I don't know. <laughs> Let's just sell them and see what happens. And yeah, they don't. There's not enough information for them to you know p- properly make those decisions. So exactly, and it that leaves all the producers and uh, just any any real cannabis company. We're kind of in the one of the purest forms of capitalism there is, I guess. You know. Well, and and Harsh you hit it there. The, the capitalism. I think there's some. Uh, revenue based on on tax uh obviously in california the more cannabis that changes hands the more money the government makes off of that and so uh mm-hmm. you know there was probably some of those motivations in the in the background going on as well yeah and you know even in, even since rackley hit california washington oregon anywhere we're always going through changes you know i think one thing even if we do get federal legalization you know, let's just take a look at the alcohol industry over the last hundred years. States still have, you know, the, the right to make their own laws regarding substances. So even if we got federal, federal legalization this fall, I still don't think California is suddenly going to be able to sell a bunch of weed to New York. You know, so we, we still have a while, I think, where we can really develop these boutique markets across the U.S. and kind of secure those niches before anything happens that would allow massive facility just try to overtake. And, you know, if you look at a given population size in any area, there are parts of the country where it's much more expensive resource wise to produce weed inside. But depending on your market price, it's not unreasonable to produce a sufficient quantity of cannabis for a given population on a relatively small acreage. You know, we're not talking about wheat or uh, barley or corn or something. So... It's Southern how's Oklahoma doing? Oh, go ahead, Daniel. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I said, how's Oklahoma doing? Right, exactly. <laughs> it's the Wild West, man. <laughs> We're going to get to some live questions, Seth and Jason. And Daniel, if you have any thoughts on any of these, you're very welcome to chime in. But before we do, Daniel, let me ask you one more question. Like, it's been tough out there. The last couple of years, last year in particular, was really hard for the industry. And I just wondered, like, any words of advice you would give to folks? Like, how you know, what, what would you say to folks just to kind of keep them going? Um, you know, if this is something that you can see yourself doing long-term, then just stick with it, you know, figure it out. You know, it's just like having like an unplanned child. It's like, just figure it out. You know, you don't, I don't have the answers for you on on what it's going to be for the individual to maintain, you know, their position and whatever it is they're doing. But if that's where you can see yourself, do whatever it takes. I got another girl, you know, I, I don't know, but <laughs> just continue. <laughs> you know? like, don't give up. Don't give up. Yeah. If you Excellent. if you put your your heart and soul into it and you work hard at it, things will things will be all right in the end. Yep. Yeah. I love it. All right. People, you know, like that's huge. Mm. All right. Well, we're going to dig into see some of these live questions. Um, Bilbo dropped a few in the chat. We're going to start with you, Bilbo. I'm going to ask you first one here. 
Um, we're, I think, Mandy, we're going to alternate between here and YouTube because we got a lot of live questions coming in. All right. Bilba posted, how does the Arroyo platform help with cost of goods sold per batch or as a facility? Yeah. So uh, by using the right amount of resources. Uh, so in a lot of instances I get in there and a client doesn't necessarily have good measurements of how much nutrients they're getting into their plants. You know, are we running off more nutrients than we need to? Can these end up in the plants? Are we, uh, we're not running our HVAC systems uh, efficiently. So maybe we could add a little bit more heat and grow a lot more product. Sure. Maybe our cost would go up, but our cost of goods sold could go down based on the input cost versus uh, our output profit or revenue on that. And so uh, I think the best thing there is trying to, or the best way that we can help do that is by equalizing all of our inputs. Uh, if we have uh, extra inputs, they're not utilized by the plant. So if we are running uh, more CO2 than we need to for the amount of light that we have, that's just a wasted cost. And so if we can optimize those all to be at the same uh, efficiency as far as the input levels go, then that's the best way to reduce COGS. Yeah, I think you nailed it. I mean, a lot of times we do go in and find uh, HVAC operations, a huge one. You know, sometimes people have a system that was designed by multiple people implemented at different times. And one of their big challenges is just getting that equipment to play nicely together to achieve what they're looking for and not have, uh, you know, their humidifier and dehumidifier running all the time on separate controllers and small issues like that. You know, <laughs> that's huge. And then standardizing it. You know, if you can take just like Jason said, equalizing your inputs, if you can standardize those run to run you can get a really good baseline of what your cost of goods actually is. That's one of the biggest challenges out there right now. You know, a lot of people we talk to, it's like, Hey, what is your cost per gram or cost of production per pound? I'll get the same answer from a few people from the same person over like, or not the same, a different answer from the same person over a month as they just are doing more and more math about where they're spending their money. The more they look into it, they go, okay, well, I wasn't accounting for this. I wasn't accounting for that. And then they start to look at like, right back to what Jason said, you know, say their environment and go, Hey, my heat fluctuates a lot throughout the day. What am I doing there? You know? Yeah. I just love to re reiterate the importance of, of long-term data logging. Obviously when we're doing indoor rooms, we have pretty reliable sessions, you know, cycle to cycle. We have a fairly close idea of what we can run. So we can create that, uh, outline, uh, of our expected cost pretty easily. Now, would love to be able to do that when I started growing in greenhouses here in uh, Eastern Washington. Obviously we have pretty significant seasons and uh, you know, the first year I had absolutely no idea what we were going to get into. You know, when yeah. December hit, what was our, our gas bill going to look like? Uh, you know, how much was I going to have to operate specific equipment like lights to keep up with supplemental uh, needs of the plants. And so after, uh, after capturing that the first year, it was, very helpful to to look back 12 months and say here's here's what our expectation is as we come into winter here's just some of the adjustments that we need to make to keep as best a product that, that we can grow in these facilities yeah and just you know morning. quantifying it outside of just the bill too yes <laughs> being able to relate like okay we spent that much and here's the results we got we we had good environmental regulation or wow last year we really struggled and we paid a lot of money what does that mean we need to improve, but how? So if you don't have the data to look back on, it's going to be, you know, not impossible, but a lot of experimentation is going to be involved in trying to get that recipe and what works in a room or facility correct. 
Awesome. Great answer. Thank you for that. Daniel, you have anything you want to add to that or any personal um, insight? Yeah. He, he nailed it. Yes. Excellent. Agree. All right. We're going to go back and forth. Mandy, I'm coming. I'm sending it over to you. What's going on on YouTube? Yeah. Thanks for all the questions over there on YouTube, everyone. Uh, Bruce Leaf wants to know, I love that name. When feeding in two gallon cocoa bags, are you looking for a percentage of runoff during each shot feeding? Not necessarily. Um, you know, the rule of thumb that I go for when I look at runoff is uh, how much am I trying to uh, impact my substrate EC, right? And obviously that's going to depend a little bit on what our feed EC is as well. And so typically more runoff is going to either stabilize or, or decrease your EC slightly more. Less runoff or no runoff at all is going to start to let it rise up. Um, you know, I've worked with some people that have a really good input of their nutrient balance and they don't necessarily even have to run runoff in two gallon cocos and they've making a, a great product and being very successful at it. Um, you know, that being said, obviously traditionally everyone's usually more comfortable with a little bit of runoff. And I, I do always recommend a little bit of runoff, um, at least after um, a couple of your P2 events. So obviously through P1, we don't need runoff. Um, as we are trying to maintain our water content, it's nice to get runoff just so you can take some pH measurements and check what your nutrient balance looks like. Yeah, I mean, you know, where I like to start that, especially with say a new strain or something, is going in and say, and looking at my graph and say, what is, what is my EC doing? Are we getting, is it rising quite a bit? Do I need to modulate that and bring it into, you know, do I need some runoff to maintain day to day? Do I need to limit runoff to raise it? And usually what I'll do is start at about, you know, 10 to 15% of that last shot is runoff and then go see what it did on the graph. You know, the unfortunate part of it is I'm not going to see that total result until, you know, the next morning before I water, I can see how high my EC's risen. And then the important thing is to note that and say, okay, you know, we might not even be talking percentages as much once we get down to irrigation program and say, hey, give it an extra 20 seconds, give it an extra 30 seconds. What did we do yesterday? Well, that stopped it from rising. <laughs> we kept it, you know, stable. And then you got to dial it, you know, with your system and with your plants, because some plants, it's not going to be uniform. Some eat quite a bit or uptake, some don't. Yeah. And, you know, one of the reasons that some of the most successful cultivators are really patient people is that they understand just that exactly, that if I make a change right now, I may not see uh, an impact from that change until it's too late to make another change to either, uh, you know, counter my first decision. And uh, a lot of people have chased their tails in this industry by trying to, to read and, and make day-to-day -day improvements on what uh, what they're what they're seeing from the garden right then, and by capturing data over grow cycle, we can think about what um, what consistency over that uh, that grow cycle looked like, and you know maybe let's make a change for the next harvest group rather than than altering midstream on this one. So exactly, if I've got that data right there, I can look back at my EC throughout a whole run, and then I note it and say, here's how much runoff I planned for today. Or I look at my irrigation schedule and go, this is what I ran. This is what happened. Again, right back to repeat it or don't. <laughs> and then eventually, as a cultivator, this is part of where uh, things being so cyclical are kind of a good thing. It becomes intuitive. You get very used to how your irrigation responds to your control commands and what it's actually going to deliver. And at that point, it's usually pretty easy to you know make those small day-to-day -day choices to keep you where you want to be. It's easy as long as you're monitoring it. 
Yeah. Good habits. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, it's always going to take people like Dan that have passion and go in there and actually care about what the plants look like and how they're doing. I can show you examples of beautiful graphs and dead plants. Oh, <laughs> well, dead at the end. It all looked good until they went to ripen, let's say, you know, just because it's so obsessed with one line and throwing out like, oh, what does the plant look like? I, I don't want burnt leaves really ever. I don't, you know. You can't, you can't know nothing about the plants and expect to have success. You've got to take some time and learn. That strain didn't want it that aggressive. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. They're all so unique. Um, thank you for that question, Bruce. Um, yeah, I'm going to actually pass it back to Keisha because we have a ton of questions, you guys. On fire today. Um, yeah, I love that conversation. The grower is always going to be important to the process. So, all right, moving on to Bilbo's second question. Love this one is a good one. What environmental control systems do the client success managers at Arroyo commonly see deployed in facilities? Well, I really like how Bilbo worded this uh, as what do we see commonly deployed um, rather than what what do we like? Uh, you know, I see uh, a, a lot of Arguses and Privas and uh, some of the bigger dedicated builds, especially on the, the East Coast. Um, mm -hmm. You know, some of the retrofitted warehouses, some Trollmaster type stuff, um, even independent thermostats, humidistats running on the walls, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, a, a collage of uh, some of the Titan control equipment. Um, so piece by piece, I think we talked a little bit uh, in the last couple of weeks about, you know, how, uh, control systems and, you know, how some can be implemented device by device, um, trying to control a specific aspect. And then some are, are more widespread where we're a system controller, like a, a building management system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it really typically we see a lot of troll master and small to medium sized grows and then above usually around 15,000 square feet. And depending on what kind of space they're retrofitting, that's also a big part of it is what kind of power they had available. Um, some people are fortunate to move into facilities that although they weren't for growing cannabis already have a good electrical system to really build a good air handling system on top of or they already had a good air handling system. They just don't have to keep it as cold now. Let's say if you're in like a frozen pea facility or something before that. So it, it really just depends on what the building looks like and what their budget looks like going in. You know, it's always going to be cheaper to buy a troll master setup for like buy a dedicated setup for a given room and replicate that than it is going to be to go, you know, a custom PLC route and have everything custom made for your facility. Now, is that what the ideal thing might be? Yes. But <laughs> in practical application, we've all got to stay on budget and just because you have something at a certain price point, as long as you can get it to work reliably and you know the limitations of that equipment, it's not a huge problem. Uh, a lot of people have really good success with Trollmaster and, uh, <clears throat> you know, hey, people were growing great weed with uh, mechanical timers for just about everything for a lot of years. <laughs> you know, that's exactly right. That you know, it's funny when you said what kind of building that they're retrofitting in. One of my, um, first really big installs when we were researching Arroyo was in a um, meat processing facility. Mm -hmm. They had been been using it. And so they were all freezers for the rooms and like yeah. fridges, cool rooms. And I was like, well, they actually have a pretty good infrastructure for running this without retrofitting. Yeah. yeah. They can just throw some lights in and they already got way, way more cooling capacity and air movement that they need. Yep. Not to mention the sanitization. Ins insulated and, walls. Yeah. Yeah. Daniel, you were saying something? Oh, that, that would be 
pretty cool to walk into, you know, blank slate like that. Like, oh yeah, just a bunch of empty refrigerator rooms. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, those are unfortunately rare. Those kind of retrofits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen a whole lot of those. Although there's, there's been some interesting ones. That's for sure. On it. Well, and you run into weird things, you know, if you have low ceilings, if you have, there's all kinds of compromises in a lot of these yeah. retrofits and with the state of the industry right now, in terms of banking, I think it'll be a while before you can go take out a cheap $10 million loan to build out a uh, mid-sized facility. You know, it's, Right now, it's hard to get get a loan. It's going to take you ten years to pay off in cannabis, and, and with the volatility in the industry, that's not necessarily something you want either. Yeah, seems like that that'll be the only one making money is the lender at that point. Well, well, and hopefully, <laughs> a lot of lenders might have some problems if they got too wild with it right now. But it's it's helping build. I think uh, you know for the businesses that are survive, surviving and being successful. Generally speaking, that's forcing them to make a lot of uh, responsible business choices and take take their expenditures way more seriously than if they had access to like, oh, we messed up. We'll just take an operating loan this year. They're like, no, this is, this is where we have to have, rea- you know, real estate or something real <laughs> for collateral here, you know? Yeah, this industry is nothing if not resourceful, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. All right, Mandy, sending it over to you for YouTube. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I think Diane popped in and popped back out. I was about to ask his question. Um, so yeah, Diane wanted to know, um, can I feed with 4.1 and still, <laughs> can I feed with 4.1 and still see def- uh, deficiency pH 6.2? <laughs> this is like really hard. Can you guys actually see this chat? Can you see the information that's in here? No. Maybe. Oh, in the Google chat? Yeah. Uh, can I feed with 4.1 and still see deficiencies? Uh, so basically what he's talking about here is uh, nutrient EC feeding at 4.1. Um, they're seeing, I'm assuming, a runoff of 6.2, indicating a slight imbalance in um, pH. Obviously, we have to assume that they're running at probably a 5.6 to 5.8 on the input pH. So really not a huge imbalance. Uh, Big questions here, you know, that we don't know about would be what is the um, uh, what is the light source and what specific uh, nutrient line and or mixture is being used. the simple answer is yes, you could see some deficiencies. Um, that being said, with the good, a good nutrient blend, um, probably not going to be running any too very many deficiencies. 4.1 is definitely on the higher end of what, uh, what we work with as far as VDCs going, um, you know, at pH 6.2, I wouldn't get really concerned. Uh, I think as usual, you'll hear us say, if, if you do have, uh, concerns, then, uh, Get a, a tap relief tissue analysis and uh, break it down the scientific way. Uh, you know, even the the smartest people in the industry have troubles uh, spotting uh, or reading leaf responses to to a specific element in the balance. Absolutely. I mean, you know, honestly, my first step there, Diane, would be to get a hold of something like the Solus and start to try to get some time series data, like doing it. 24 times a day or something's probably unrealistic, but if you can do it right before and right after your P1s and then do it again at the end of the day before you are out of the room, try to get an idea of what your EC is actually doing. You know, that 4.1 feed is less important than what the EC state is in the, in the media itself. So like if you're me, if in your media, you're ranging from a nine to a 16, 
doesn't matter if you're feeding 3.0 or 4.1 or whatever, that EC is already higher. So one of the big questions is if we're looking at deficiencies, how much runoff are you running? Is it being washed back close to 4.1 pretty frequently? Is that what we have going on here? Um, is the EC actually really high? You know, you can push high EC quite a ways before we actually hit toxicity. And typically we'll hit osmotic problems before we hit toxicity. So without knowing what's going on in the block, it's really hard to say. Um, if your pH is rising, like Jason said, you're feeding a 5.6 to a 5.9, you're coming out at 6.2. We're looking at a plant that's not feeding very much. And that could be for a variety of reasons. And it can, like Jason said, depend on light, nutrient line you're running. Uh, we could even depend partially on VPD. There's a lot of factors. If anything is out of line in the environment, you're not going to expect a plant to uptake in a uh, normal expected fashion without really diving into what kind of fluctuations you're seeing throughout the day. And again, what Jason said, it's, it can be very tough to tell the difference between uh, a deficiency, a toxicity, a pH swing. You know, if our pH is too low or too high, we essentially have a deficiency, but we don't in terms of, you know, what, uh, what available element or what elements are there, they're just not available. You know, if my pH is up by seven or not up by seven, like let's say down by five or 4.8 and I'm early on, you know, in stretch, I'm already that low, man, it might look like I really need to get more fertilizer on there. Like it's getting yellow and deficient. Well, maybe, maybe I already have plenty of nitrogen in there. My, my pH is just too low. I can't take it up. It's not locked out. It's not burnt. It's not even actually deficient. I just, I created that low pH state early on and now I'm seeing a health-wise deficiency in the plant. But again, it's not a deficiency in my fertilization. It's a pH problem. Yeah. And you know, there's some really good resources out there that can kind of help you get used to, um, or anybody get used to some of the basics as far as how these interactions are. And uh, that's a, you know, a nutrient solubility chart. Uh, it's basically pH from low to high. And it talks about the different elements and how much solubility usually they'll have some either square boxes or some some uh, trapezoidal type lines that indicate all right here's how much nitrogen could be uptake at this specific ec and uh, or excuse me at this specific ph and then you go down the list and it'll have phosphorus and potassium and mm -hmm. uh, boron and iron and uh, all that types of stuff and uh, you know another one with there is um, what is it mueller's chart that talks mm -hmm. about some of the uh, nutrient um, relationships as far as which ones kind of prevent other nutrients from being uptakes and which ones um, actually increase the uptake of other nutrients. So those are some, some good resources that uh, you, know, you can dig into. And I'm sure if you're, you're like me, you'll end up at like 2 a.m. after clicking on 35 links and reading something completely, completely off topic, <laughs> but you'll know a lot more about the, that section of, of cultivation. Yeah. And even, you know, um, <clears throat> honestly, in terms of pH, you don't even really need to look at cannabis or hydrosponic specific sources. If you want to know what's going on with the plant and its interaction with nutrients around it, like we've been putting lime on soil for well over 4,000 years. They've been putting gypsum on soil for well over 4,000 years. And it's the same basic principles we're talking about right here, getting the uh, soil or getting the nutrient solution pH in range to have efficient uptake. Yeah. That being said, it is specific for, uh, 
types of substrate as far as those pH solubility yes. charts. So if you're working in something like soil, usually you'll see ideal ranges <coughs> up towards that 7.0 range. Um, if you're looking at cocoa, then typically, you know, it'll be around that six range um, yep. plus or minus some. And then a lot of times a rock will, will be down towards that five, six. So make sure that the chart that you are looking at is applicable to the uh, media that you're growing in. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for bringing that up. I guess what I was getting at more is just the science behind it's not not new in terms of pH relationship with specific plant elements or plant essential elements. There we go. Awesome. Thank you guys for that. And Diane, sorry for butchering your question, um, but this is why these guys are the pros. Um, so yeah, I think we have some live questions. So I'm going to pass it back to Keisha. Thanks, Mandy. Yeah, we're going to go just a few minutes longer here since we got a little bit of a late start. Um, asking Bilbo's third question here. Moving toward recipes, do you think that the annotation features are more powerful than the time outside of a specific range out of spec? So for me, the annotations make that out of spec powerful. Uh, and I, you know, I think the most generic example that I use that has happened to probably almost anyone that's watching this is a, a dehumidifier going out and seeing that, that humidifier go or that humidity go way up. Well, if we put an annotation in there, someone saw it happen, someone read the graph and went and checked mm -hmm. that, that it got fixed the next day rather than, uh, you know, having a, a plant response and then trying to work down the mystery of, you know, what happened. Uh, another great example of this is some of the, uh, same thing, humidity, uh, uh, lights off, uh, humidity spike. So a lot of times with HPS, we're burning a quite a bit of the humidity off just from the heat produced in the lights. And when we turn those off, a lot of times our humidity will spike right up. Well, let's make an annotation on that and adjust that time frame. Uh, let's kick the uh, dehum on maybe 30 minutes before lights off. Well, it, it took us lower than we wanted. So let's move that to 15 minutes. And um, so annotations uh, for me, they are what give a human readable attribute to the data, right? Why did this happen? Uh, a lot of times, that's going to be an afterthought, but what continuous improvement does is allows you to build stabilized systems by analyzing the issues you've run into. Yeah. I, I get, actually got a great example from a few weeks ago right on the top of my head from that one. Um, spraying. I saw a great picture. What happened to my plants? I look back at the graph about four days before and see a huge humidity swing. Did you guys spray? Did you spray Newcomb? <laughs> is it the ends of the benches? Is it like, let's go through it and like, oh, okay. All right. So if we didn't have the annotation though, I'd go like, wow, what's the swing? Um, otherwise guys, I don't know. Like usually a humidity swing wouldn't cause that. But what that told me was, Hey, something was sprayed on. I'm going to ask about that because, uh, at certain points, depending on what's being sprayed and especially in certain states or countries where different things are not okay to spray. If I know a grower might be relying hard on a certain, uh, pesticide. Like I love to use, you know, any, uh, citric acid treatment as an example, the difference between be that being used as a pesticide and an herbicide is just dosage. You know, the, uh, dosage makes the poison. So <laughs> there's all, I've always little things to look back at. I think Jason captured it perfectly there. Annotation gives that data power. You can actually act on it or not act on it. Knowledge is power, right? All right, Mandy, I think we have one more question from YouTube. Take it away. Um, yeah, thank you guys for all the shout outs over there too. Iron Armor wants to know, what's the best way to apply leaf tissue samples to your irrigation and nutrient program? 
So wait, <laughs> build out that profile, wait until the end of your run and look back and see if you, and also I always like to say this pictures, pictures, pictures. If you are already taking leaf tissue analysis and you're doing it regularly throughout a run with a different strain, take a picture of that strain. Every single time you take a leaf cutting from it, take a picture of that plant and start to associate those values with overall plant health. And that's the best way you're going to see improvements if you go, okay. And the hard part, again, when we're talking about leaf tissue analysis. If we look at other crops, these tests were done thousands and thousands and thousands of times over and over and over with the same varieties grown across several different environments and then data corrected to actually look at what kind of results we're getting. So are they useful? Absolutely. See what's going on in there, but you need to look at a whole run before you're ever able to make a plant nutrition choice change. Ken, you know, one thing for me when I am starting to get into some pretty complicated stuff like, um, you know, associating leaf, leaf tissue analysis with making uh, nutrient adjustments, uh, you know, I start to, to lose some of my data. And the, one of the best things you can do is just start attributing your harvest groups. So when we can look back at what our strains performed like and, and what modifications we made, we can kind of keep our brain straight as far as, you know, what all went into this harvest group. So and we've got a good area for taking pictures in there. Uh, you can upload, you know, uh, leaf tissue analysis into to those annotations as well. And just, just do your best to collectively get that information into one place. So things that your team's taken on a daily basis for, as a digital grow journal, um, some of those more advanced techniques like employing uh, tissue analysis, making nutrient modifications, uh, just try and collaborate it so that the, the clues all work together to give you the full picture. Absolutely. And, you know, go through it and establish basically some KPIs know that like, Hey, after I've, if I've done tissue analysis on this strain, let's say three runs, I'm looking at nitrogen indication at week three or four, how high, how much nitrogen have I built up? I'm looking for a few key things at a few certain points because, Okay, let's say I'm not super happy with the numbers I'm seeing on my micros. Okay, well, that might not mean a whole, you know, change in fertilizer. I might just have to raise the EC a little bit or raise or lower my pH. So although those are important, the big thing we're looking for is specific goals to achieve and then relating that to plant health. If I see a plant that's yellow or it's got, you know, some clear magnesium deficiency or something, then I see that reflected in the numbers. Boom, there we go. But I would honestly, with the state of fertilizer on the market right now, I would kind of discourage a lot of people from trying to delve too far into that and making day-to-day -day adjustments, you know, compile that data. And once you've got quite a bit, look back at, there's a, you need a lot of it to make it statistically significant. Awesome. Thank you guys for that. And I believe that's it for YouTube for today. And we're all about out of time right now. So, um, yeah, I will pass it back over to Keisha. Awesome, Mandy. Thank you so much. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, really cool to hear your story. We love hearing from growers doing it out there. So just wishing you continued success. And since we're both in the Bay, we're going to have to meet up in Oakland sometime. Mm -hmm. Yes. All right. And then as usual, Seth and Jason, thank you for your expertise. Thank you for another great conversation. Any other, anything else you want to say before we go? Just another huge thanks to Dan. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show, man. Really appreciate it.
round of applause. And Mandy, my co-moderator, thank you as usual for helping me hold it down. Thanks to everybody who joined us this week for Office Hours. We do this every Thursday. Best way to get answers from the experts, as you can tell, is to join us live. If you're looking to learn more about Aurora, be sure to book a demo with us and our experts will walk you through all the ways it can be used to improve your cultivation production process. But as always, if there's a topic you'd like covered on a future episode of Office Hours, post it anytime via the Arroyo app. Feel free to drop ideas in the chat. Send us an email at support.arroyo.com or send us a DM over all the socials. We are everywhere. Um, we want to hear from you. We record every session. We will email everyone in attendance a link to the video. It'll also be on the Arroyo YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, and share while you're there. And if you find these conversations helpful, spread the word. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Have a great day. Bye. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io.